Sir, I just got back last night from a reporting trip to the border where I met nine-year-old Josel, who walked here from Honduras by himself, uh, along with another little boy. He had that Astounding. phone number on him, and we were able to call his family. His mother says that she sent her son to this country because she believes that you are not deporting unaccompanied minors like her son. That's why she sent him alone from Honduras. So, sir, you blame the last administration, but is your messaging in saying that these children are and will be allowed to stay in this country and work their way through this process, encouraging families like Joselle's to come? Well, look, <laughs> the idea that I'm going to say, which I would never do, that if an unaccompanied child ends up at the border, we're just going to let them starve to death and stay on the other side. No previous administration did that either, except Trump. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. That was ABC's Cecilia Vega posing one of the more pointed questions to President Biden at his first press conference Thursday. Did his more lenient policies encourage a rash of unaccompanied minors to show up at the border, overwhelming U.S. officials and resulting in thousands of children being crammed into detention centers and facilities, sleeping on floors with nowhere to go? It's an excruciating dilemma and to all but White House spin doctors, a legitimate humanitarian crisis. But Biden, for the most part, stood fast to his core principles. There will be no return to the harsh policies of his predecessor, even if he offered no clear path to a resolution. It was a press conference at which he made some news, hinting that he will back a reform of the filibuster, denouncing Republican efforts to restrict voting, and indicating he does indeed plan to run for re-election with Vice President Harris on his ticket. But on one question of overriding importance to the news media, whether he will commit to opening up those border facilities stuffed with young children to the press, Biden dodged, saying not until he can make things better. How do we assess Biden's performance and that of the press on what was asked and what was not asked? We'll talk to our Yahoo News colleague, Caitlin Dixon, who's been covering the border crisis, and to our former colleague, Olivier Knox, now with The Washington Post, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So we have been waiting for some time for Biden's inaugural press conference. He's, the White House has been getting some heat at uh, for not having one. He finally did today. It's already provoking quite the um, debate uh, and controversy on Twitter. Uh, Olivier, uh, you are a, a veteran White House correspondent. You're the former president of the White House Correspondents Association. You've covered lots of press conferences I'd like to start with you. Uh, how do you assess how Biden did and how the news media did in questioning him? In terms of how Biden did, you know, he did signal some uh, support for overhauling the filibuster, but he seemed very at, at peace with using the filibuster himself on a few of his answers. Um, <laughs> he did not answer a fairly direct, straightforward question about policy towards China. 
Um, he uh, took another question about about guns into a, a meandering uh, conversation or, or, or speech, rather, about his plans regarding infrastructure. He did make a little bit of news, although we expected it, uh, signaling that he's not going to make the May 1st deadline for pulling out of Afghanistan, but that this will be the final year in which troops, American troops, are there. Um, so I would say uh, for him, you know, he, he from, from the White House perspective, they have to be fairly pleased with his performance. He didn't, there were no notable gaffes. There were a couple of answers where he sort of trailed off, but nothing all that significant. He didn't make any news on anything that they might find uh, uh, problematic, I think. In terms of the White House press corps or, or the representatives of the White House press corps, since this was a socially distanced event, you know, it's obviously notable that there were no questions about the pandemic. Um, it's notable there were no questions about reopening schools or traveling. It's notable that there were no direct questions about the economy. You know, we've got millions of Americans uh, who've permanently lost their jobs. We saw uh, new jobless claims. What is it? Around, around 600,000 today, which is the lowest level since the pandemic began, but still higher than anything in the Great Recession. So I thought there were some some uh, pretty notable omissions. Yeah, look, I'm re- reopening schools, uh, that one is certainly on the minds of a lot of Americans. And the idea that it didn't even come up is 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 pretty striking. But the other I would, one, I, well, the one thing I would add, by the way, is, I mean, you mentioned guns. Yes, there was one question about guns, but it was kind of sandwiched in between a bunch of other things and allowed uh, Biden to pivot to uh, something that he wanted to talk about, which was his infrastructure plan. But my God, this was... Uh, you know, days after uh, two of the most terrific mass shootings, you know, in a very long time where gun legislation and, and gun safety legislation is is back on the agenda, should be back on the agenda. I was really surprised that um, he didn't get a sharp question on uh, gun legislation or, he didn't or any follow ups. He didn't he didn't speak a, a, about it himself, given right, all but the he's attention not gonna it's gotten em- the he, last week. He's not going to emphasize that because he knows what a heavy lift it, it's going to be to get any meaningful gun legislation passed. But it is up to the White House press corps to press him on that. And I was surprised that they didn't. Victoria, were you uh, as surprised as uh, Clyman and I were? Well, maybe they didn't ask him any questions because they already know his answer, right? We know where he stands in terms of policy and what he wants to get done. And they also know that his answer is uh, kind of a whiff on whether or not he supports pulling back or kind of undoing the filibuster. I think maybe they maybe they tried to get him on things where he hasn't spoken before. There's a uh, there's not much he can do right now on gun control. The fate of the, that legislation is not in his hands at all. But the yeah. only I, I got to push back a little bit. You know, the only way you could get anything done on this issue is to make it a number one priority of your administration and put in all the, the the muscle you can, rhetorical and political, and that means talking about it and talking about it a lot. And, you know, it's it's all, all, virtual absence from this press conference was was pretty striking to me after everything we've been talking about the last few days. You know, he th- there was an issue that he talked a lot about, which he may not have wanted to talk too much about, which is immigration. We're going to get to that in a second with Caitlin. Um, but I just wanted to follow up uh, with Olivier quickly because uh, you mentioned uh, the filibuster. I think he did make some news on the filibuster. Uh, he, he clearly had, he had previously 
uh, said that he was in favor, I think, in an ABC interview with George Stephanopoulos of bringing back uh, the uh, talking filibuster. If He did have also a funny line. I think he didn't he say that uh, uh, when he came to the Senate 120 years ago, which I yes. thought was actually pretty good. Uh, yeah. But um, but he went a little bit beyond that. Uh, he said uh, if there is complete lockdown and chaos as a result of the filibuster, we'll have to go beyond what I'm talking about. Now, he's talking about the talking filibuster. Going beyond that, I think, would mean eliminating the filibuster. It, it could. The, the, way that, the way the question was asked and the way that he answered it, I think, reflects part of the conversation in Congress right now, which is, do you do away with the, the filibuster entirely or do you do away with it for certain pieces of legislation? And it sounded to me from his answer that he said, you know, the, we did refer to that lockdown and chaos, but I think he was tying it pretty concretely to uh, to voting rights. It's like a carve out for voting legislation. Exactly, right. exactly. So yes, he did. He absolutely did make news because he hinted that you know basically if all they get is obstruction on this stuff, right, then he would be, he would be in favor of going beyond the talking filibuster. I did like his reference to um, the 120 years ago, but I also like the fact that he said. Back in the old days, you know, you talked until you collapsed and people got tired of talking and then collapsing. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but yeah, he did make news on that. His problem is that um, he doesn't have even a major, he doesn't even have all the Democrats in the Senate behind him on on making changes to the filibuster. You know, Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, has said he wants to bring back the talking filibuster or some version of it. OK, they're aligned on that. But moving beyond that, as Biden alluded to in this press conference, he doesn't have it. He's got at least two possibly four or five Democratic senators who've said publicly, nah. uh So let's talk about uh, the border and immigration. Caitlin, you've been covering that for uh, Yahoo News. Um, what did you make of Biden's answers on that one? Uh, I heard a little bit of news about uh, transferring uh, thousands of these kids to a military base, Fort Bliss in Texas. Uh, that was the first time we've heard about that. But overall, Give us your uh, your take. Yeah, I think the Fort Bliss the Fort Bliss thing was something that has been in the works and been reportedly you know being vetted by HHS with the Department of Defense as a place to send these kids. But that seemed to be kind of the only news that Biden maybe broke on that front, confirming that they are going to start doing that. But yeah, there was a lot of you know kind of refusal to kind of take any of the blame for the current situation at the border, a lot of pointing to the policies of the Trump administration, which, you know, are accurate to some degree, and also pointing to things like seasonal migration influxes, which happen every year, conditions in in the home country that drive people, you know, to the border. But I also think Biden has, has tried very hard to, like, not acknowledge his policies have had any impact on people's decisions to to travel to the border or to send their children to try to cross the border. And I think that's kind of unrealistic. Caitlin, you know, we played uh, that uh, Celia Vega question um, at the outset, whether his policies and his rhetoric is encouraging uh, families to send their small children, you know, on this thousand mile torturous walk to the to the border. And, And that's a very important question from a humanitarian standpoint. But in some ways, I wonder if it misses the point uh, because Biden, look, he clearly, you know, he said what he believes, which is, you know, I'm not going to allow that to happen. You know, that's not who we are. The question is, if he wasn't going to allow it to happen, 
And he was going to send the message that we would allow children to stay in, in this country. Why weren't they more prepared yeah. for the crisis that has, uh, that has unfolded? I think that's exactly a great question and the question that has not really been answered. Um, you know, back in November and December of last year, before Biden was president, um, the Department of Health and Human Services and Office of Refugee Resettlement under Trump, you know, had been refusing to increase capacity at shelters that house migrant children saying that, you know, they simply couldn't make more room for kids, even as more and more were coming over. And the Biden administration or the transition team at the time was aware of this. They're aware of, you know, the shortage in space in terms of, you know, these shelters that are designated for unaccompanied migrant children. And there are a lot of questions as to why more wasn't done in the months leading up to Biden's inauguration to prepare for what was kind of a predictable situation. If if Biden was, as you said, going to not turn away kids at the border, which he has made clear that's not, you know, within his values to do. And also, as he said, which has not been done by any other administration, it's actually, you know, against the law. It does seem like they they had an opportunity to prepare for this uh, well in advance. It wasn't until late February that they first announced they were going to start sending kids to uh, one influx facility in Carrizo Springs in Texas. And by that point, it was clear that, you know, they were going to need a lot more space. And since then, they've announced, you know, several more sites, including, as as Biden mentioned today, you know, plans to send up to I think he said 5,000 kids to Fort Bliss. So yeah, that's a good question. I also think like in terms of the point, Biden had, I think a notable response to that question later on where he went back to the situation of the nine-year-old from Honduras and the mom who said that she decided to send him, you know, on this dangerous journey because she thought that Biden wouldn't deport her kid. And and Biden said, you know, what a desperate act to take with the circumstances in that child's home country must be horrible. And that's something like that's something that the, the Trump administration really never acknowledged. Um, you know, people who were coming here in caravans and attempting to seek asylum at the border with children were painted as criminals and people who were trying to take advantage of loopholes in our asylum laws. And so I do think it's important to recognize, you know, the conditions in these countries that even if a change of a presidency and certain policies or rhetoric that indicates that, you know, the government's going to be more welcoming than the past president may be inspiring more people to come. You don't like leave your home or send your child on such a such a perilous journey if things aren't completely terrible where you are, you know? On the other hand, the idea that increasing foreign aid to these countries is going to somehow transform them from the poverty-stricken, gang-ridden, uh, you know, violent drug trafficking countries that they are is kind of a pipe dream. Yes, we should do it. Yes, we should try to make things better, of course, but that's not a short-term solution to what is going on. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. And even Biden noted in the press conference that, you know, sending 
sending funds specifically to the governments of these countries, which are notoriously corrupt, is ineffective. Wasn't the Honduran president just uh, yeah. convicted of drug trafficking? <laughs> or at least there was evidence of his role in the drug trade uh, right. entered into I, federal court. Yeah, I think one of the more important uh, kind of like longer term initiatives or medium to longer term initiatives that the Biden administration is talking about is not those that are focused on making, you know, the Northern Triangle countries places where people are are not going to want to flee, but, you know, setting up systems in those countries so that people who who do need to seek safety in the United States can do so without coming all the way here, you know, setting up refugee admissions offices where people can apply for protections in the United States without, you know, walking all the way through Mexico and then being turned away at the border. So those are the kinds of programs that I think like are more realistically going to help address the situation. Let's go to one of the more, uh, another one of the more pointed uh, questions at this press conference and one that uh, I think um, is of interest to all of us as members of the media. And that's the transparency question from Kristen Welker. And I just want to preface this. We're going to play it for a moment. uh, And then I want to get everybody's reaction to uh, the exchange. But um, I just want to preface it with you know, already you could see, uh, you know, pushback on Twitter and elsewhere. Oh, the press is obsessed with this. And, you know, it's a narrow parochial issue. Look, transparency is our job <laughs> pushing for that, you know, right or left, you know, admin- Republican or Democratic administrations, you know, that's what we do. And, you know, when you speak to a civil rights group, you talk about your civil rights policies, you get questions on that. You speak to the business roundtable, you get questions about tax policies and regulatory policies. When you're doing a press conference, you will and you should get questions about how transparent your White House is. So let's play the exchange with uh, Kristen Welker and uh, then talk about how Biden handled it. Will you commit to allowing journalists to have access to the facilities that are overcrowded moving forward? I will commit when my plan very shortly is underway to let you have access to not just them, but to other facilities as well. Will you commit to transparency on this issue? I will commit to transparency. And as soon as I am in a position to be able to implement what we're doing right now, and one of the reasons I haven't gone down, I have all my, my chief folks have gone down, is I don't want to become the issue. I don't want to be, you know, bringing all the Secret Service and everybody with me to get in the way. So this is being set up, and you'll have full access to everything once we get this thing moving. Okay, just to be clear, how soon will that be, Mr. President? I don't know. To be clear, sounded like a dodge to me, Olivier. What do you say? Of course, it was. I mean, they've been they've been dodging this question for at least a couple of weeks now. Um, you know, they they committed to opening facilities, but not the primary ones that reporters were interested in. They've been beating back reports about Department of Homeland Security nixing ride-alongs with CBP. Uh, the Homeland Security uh, Secretary Ali Mayorkas. The other day, I was asked about nixing ride-alongs, and he said basically, basically said they're too busy doing other things. So, yeah, of course, uh, of course, it was a, of course, it was a dodge. I would say on the broader transparency question, I am old enough to remember when uh, Barack Obama's spokesman Josh Earnest 
really lectured journalists and said, basically, you're the only constituency for this. And basically, if you don't reward us with praise and future administrations simply won't do it. Um, that was from the most transparent administration in history. <laughs> Victoria, your, uh, your take on the transparency issue. Well, so one of the landmines I think that presidents always run into at, um, at these press conferences is that they overpromise and then underdeliver. And I think this is a case of Biden trying to underpromise and maybe underdeliver too, um, or not deliver. No one in the press is going to let him get away with this. There's no way that he's not going to get, he and his press uh, secretary aren't going to get asked this question pretty much on the regular. So he may have tried to dodge, but it's, he dodged for about 24 hours. Yeah. What, what I heard from that answer is we'll let you in when there's nothing to see. Yeah. I, that's exactly the impression that I got. You know, once I'm in a better position, once we, once we look good. Yeah. yeah. Once it's under control and it looks better, then we'll let. Well, yeah. In. I mean, I think it's, I mean, speaking of transparency, it's pretty transparent what they're doing. Um, And actually, I don't know, uh, and this is in no way uh, defending what they're doing, but I don't know that it's not the shrewd thing politically to do, which is they are trying to buy themselves time so that when these images finally start uh, popping up in in the news media, they will have a plan. They can say that they are fixing the problem. And then, you know, we will all move on to the next controversy. So they should be transparent about it. We should be let into these facilities. We should be allowed on ride-alongs. But Josh Ernest uh, may also uh, be right that we are the main constituency for this, even though we represent, in a way, the American people. So, you know, I, I, I don't think it's more complicated than that. Um, let's talk about some of the foreign policy issues. Uh, Olivia, you alluded to some of them on Afghanistan and uh, China, but um, I'd like to go into a little more depth. Uh, on Afghanistan, Biden said, I'm not going to meet Trump's May 1 deadline, uh, but um, I fully expect a year from now we won't have any troops there. Uh, right. I don't know. I kind of feel like I've heard this kind of talk before. Well, at least he didn't say we were turning a corner in Afghanistan. Um, <laughs> or we have yeah. seen light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> right, well, right, right. The joke being, of course, we've turned so many corners, we've gone around the block six to ten times. Um, the, the, um, the thing about Afghanistan, so he sort of telegraphed that in the interview with, uh, with George Stephanopoulos on ABC, saying it would be tough to meet the May 1 deadline, criticizing the uh, deal to make a deal from last February, the one between Trump and, and the Taliban, and then said he wouldn't stay that much longer. He basically said the same thing today, except that he was pressed on a date to speculate about whether next year we'd still have a, a military footprint there. And that's where he said it would be hard to imagine that. That's, you know, I would call that news adjacent. Actually, one interesting dynamic here is that yesterday at a uh, forum organized by Foreign Policy Magazine, the Democratic chairman of the uh, House Armed Services Committee came out and said, oh, yeah, no, they're not pulling it. They're not going to make the May 1 deadline. It's too logistically difficult. And it, it appears to have eluded the bulk of the press corps. Um, that this happened. But it, that wasn't that much of a surprise. I mean, I, not to me anyway. It, it always seemed like they weren't going to make the May 1 deadline. Right. But do you think we will have no troops in Afghanistan by next no, year? Of course not. Of course, I, we will have we will have some kind of military footprint in Afghanistan um, in 2022. Uh, what about uh, the uh, his responses on China? 
That was really disappointing to me because he was asked a pretty smart question by Justin Sink of Bloomberg about whether he planned to keep or get rid of the tariffs that he inherited from Donald Trump, tariffs on a wide range of Chinese goods. He was asked, this was a really important question. He was asked um, whether Biden would take steps to curb the import of uh, products from China produced with slave labor, an obvious reference to the plight of the Uyghur people in Xinjiang province, um, which everyone is talking about. And he he gave an answer that he gave a, I should say, he, should, he gave a reply, not an answer. He gave a reply that was really interesting because he talked about his personal relationship with Chinese leader Xi Jinping, but he didn't answer those questions. And I, I, I know Justin well. I know that he, he had to follow up on a different topic, um, but I know that he wasn't satisfied with, with that answer. It would have been great if someone had pressed a little bit more on this. Just how far are you willing to go to punish Beijing for what they're doing in Xinjiang is a really important foreign policy question now. It's the most important international relationship on the world stage. Um, so that was that was kind of disappointing. Uh, Victoria, I think the moment where Biden was most passionate uh, during this press conference was when he was talking about uh, voting. Uh, when he was asked about Republican efforts in state legislatures across the country to roll back access to voting, you know, based on you know, fraudulent charges of, of uh, voter fraud uh, during the last election. He said uh, he called it sick and un-American. And um, he even said uh, this wasn't Jim Crow. This was uh, Jim Eagle. Um, no, it makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle, yeah. which is not a not the most I've heard before. Felicitous. Uh, Who's Jim yeah. Eagle? He's a real guy, apparently a real estate agent yeah. in Texas who's getting hammered by right now off of all of this. So, oh, yeah. God. Uh, well, so we, we did a whole show on voting with you recently. Um, what, what did you make of um, his comments um, on that issue? What's interesting is, is this does kind of go back to your point, Danny, earlier about the gun massacre issue, where Biden sort of, you know, avoided making a big issue out of it and using his bully pulpit to talk about it. On the voting issues, he did kind of go all in on making the point that the, the voting legislation that is moving its way through Congress right now should pass. He said not only was the legislation that's moving in the states right now un-American, he also even worse, said it's unpopular with Republicans. So he's he's pushing, I would say, pretty hard on this. What's interesting, I think, is that um, it also brings in the filibuster answer that he was giving again over and over and over again. So you can sort of see him circling this issue of using his bully pulpit and using his kind of inside knowledge of the way the Senate works to try to turn this around and to try to make it happen. But we'll see. I think we're going to start seeing movement in the Senate uh, next month. Isn't it also true, though, that um, Republicans, perhaps because they are sensing the way the political winds are blowing, are starting to uh, modify some of these proposals? In Georgia, they've tamped them down and taken out some of the more offensive provisions uh, in the original versions of those uh, of those bills. So the political dynamic there, you know, that's that's. Good for Georgia voters if these bills pass. At least it's better for Georgia voters than they otherwise would have been. But on the other hand, it could take a little bit of the steam out of the push to pass HR one in the Senate. I'm not sure. I, I think that uh, today the uh, the the bill 
kind of gained a a little fillip of momentum when Joe Manchin indicated support for some of its broad provisions. He he didn't uh, he didn't go whole hog or you know all in mm-hmm. on HR one, but he did indicate support. So I think there's I think there's momentum going on right now, and the momentum doesn't depend on bad things happening in the states. Hmm. What did what did what did Manchin say he would support? Uh, he indicated support for early voting hours. He indicated support for some of the campaign finance provisions and some of the other ethics provisions that were in the bill. So that was a, a big step forward for a lot of people who are pushing for the the voting legislation. But again, fifty votes. You need fifty votes. You need or sixty votes. You know that's the that's the big question. Yeah, it's just a reminder of how often we're going to be talking about Joe Manchin, <laughs> the new power broker in the uh, United States Senate. Why don't we talk about Kristen Cinema uh, as uh, the new power broker in the Senate? She holds most of the same positions as, as he does. Um, she's also a member of the Senate. I just is it? I mean, is, is it sexism? I mean, everyone is obsessed with Joe Manchin, but um, I don't see the difference. He staked out an earlier position. He's the one who came out and basically killed the Neera Tandon nomination. So it's it's just a it's kind of a finders keepers dynamic here. Um, you are, of course, right that that cinema, and in fact, a few other Democratic senators have come out and and signaled opposition to parts or all of HR one, and 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 have um, indicated discomfort. With Maggie Hassan has come out and said she wouldn't support changing the filibuster rules. I believe for to, to get this through. The the thing, what's happening behind the scenes on HR one though, is there's actually much more Democratic angst about this thing than there appears to be on the surface. You know, people when you talk to people on the Hill, they'll say, look. This, this thing is going to have to be massively amended or, or broken up because there are things like they require the acquisition of some kinds of voting machines by 2023. The machines won't actually be available till 2025. So there's, a, there's a, a sense that this was kind of rushed through and it's going to need a lot of changing. And I've talked to a bunch of people on the Democratic Senate side who say, boy, it would have been great if they had taken just a week to 10 days, talk to voting administrators, including Democrats, and fixed a lot of the technical flaws here, because as it is, it's not going to get through. You know, also in there is like a, a, a ethics uh, a code for the Supreme Court. Can Congress dictate what the uh, judiciary's, uh, what the Supreme Court's ethics code should be? How, you know, how, how do you think the Supreme Court bills get paid? It's uh, Cong- Congress telling them that they've got to, you yeah, know. Yeah, but a- I mean, I don't know. There's something about separation of powers, I think, that uh, will inevitably produce a constitutional challenge. Uh, exactly. I would, I would this- All right. I want to I ask the panel. Um, th- there's always there, there's the substantive uh, dimension of these press conferences and there's the style piece of it. And I'm curious what you all think. This is the first time that we've seen uh, Biden, you know, kind of go before the press for how long was this press conference? More than an hour. A little more than an hour. Having to be unscripted. Um, He was um, at times during the campaign, particularly in debates, uh, pretty wobbly. You know, he is, you know, uh, famously gaff prone. My sense of it was that he actually uh, did very well uh, in terms of uh, seeming on the ball. Uh, his humor, I think, helped. We talked about the 120 years remark. He also uh, said that thing about missing Trump. God, I miss him, um, which <laughs> I think got a, a chuckle. What do you all think about how he did up there? I mean, I think there's a lot of speculation that part of the reason his staff held him back so long was because they may have been nervous about how he was going to do. Caitlin, what's your your view of uh of, of how he performed. 
Um, I mean, I think he did pretty well. I think there were, there were moments I noticed, you know, where he seemed to kind of like lose his train of thought and kind of get off topic. And there were definitely, you know, some misstatements or things that he said that weren't totally either clear what he meant or accurate. But that might have been the Biden in like 1987. You know, I mean, well, I, sure, I but I mean, you know, I think like if, if Trump were to say the same things, we would be right, you know, on him. You know, Biden said something like, I'm not going to apologize for rolling back the policies of separating children from their mothers, which he did not do. You know, that policy had been terminated way before Biden came into office. And so I don't think that Biden is, you know, trying to claim credit for that. Maybe it's just, you know, a missed statement, but I do think he did have a few in at least in the immigration section some some things where he wasn't totally clear. Olivier, what did you think about the uh, performance aspect of the press conference? In terms of Biden's performance, I mean, one of the things and this is um this will not be fair, but I want it to be self-aware uh, as it's unfair. We, we don't you know, worry the, about being fair on Skullduggery. <laughs> this is a rock for the and roll record, for the record, I always, a, yes we do <laughs> worry okay. about being fair. Editor in chief has got to say that. Yeah. Well, you know, when 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 Mike started out 120 years ago, yeah. different different standards. <laughs> um but uh no, I thought w- one of the things that shaped my perception of of Biden's performance and I thought he did fine. Um, there were two things shaping it. One was the the steady Republican drumbeat that was basically like, oh my God, he's not even going to do this. He's a drooling dementia patient. It's just not going to happen. You're seeing some efforts to, 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 to do that again now. I can, by the way, I can tell you that a lot of people spell dementia, D-I-M, based on my reader email. Um, <laughs> but so it, and they've, done, and they've done this to themselves again and again and again. Remember when he wasn't going to show for the Democratic debates? Remember when he wasn't going to show for the Republican debates or the debates with Trump? Remember when he was going to put in a horrifying performance with Donald Trump? None of those has ever panned out. I think that in, in some ways he was in more danger at the CNN town hall than he was in this press conference because the CNN town hall was questions being asked by Americans about popular problems. Uh, you know, the small business owner fretting about the impact of a $15 minimum wage that Biden has supported, the the parent concerned about reopening schools. And he handled that pretty well, I thought. And I thought I thought that was much, that's much more going back to your transparency point. That's much more dangerous for a president to screw up than, you know, a TV correspondent asking him about transparency. How do you uh, review the press's performance at today's uh, press conference. You know, I, I had a chance before we got on to look back at, at Trump's first press conference in uh, in 2017. And I was uh, I was thinking in, in the wake of where he kind of went on full scale attack on the, the press. And I, I'm just sort of curious that after four years of Trump, has the press changed? Well, I think we alluded to one of the problems, right, which is the the lack of questions on the pandemic and the lack of questions on what I would call kitchen table economic issues, right? So that's that's part of the criticism. If you're talking about tone, I mean, there certainly could have been punchier versions of the questions that were that were asked in this press conference. Um, I'm I'm generally fairly loath to indulge in media on media violence, just as as a as a as a, a consequence of being head of the White House Correspondents Association. I'm aware that someone on media violence is very popular, like we don't need to add to it. I think the question of the way the press asked its questions is, is a legitimate one. The question of whether the Trump era changed us is also legitimate. Frankly, it felt like a return 
to what the press was like under George W. Bush or under Barack Obama. Are you not concerned at all about a, a, a any kind of overcorrection, um, at least sure. for a short while? I mean, that there's a, we're giving him too much of a uh, of a honeymoon at this point. Um, well, I mean, except for the daily drumbeat of immigration stories, right, right, right. You know, sure. I mean, that's obviously that's obviously a, a, a concern. I mean, you're seeing also you're seeing a number of uh, of uh, Demo- democratic aides or former democratic aides and liberals trying to create sort of journalistic no go zones in the Biden era, saying you know you can't report on X because we think you failed um, in asking about X under Trump, right? And that's also worrisome. Um, but of course it's a concern. That's why I said you could be, you could have a couple of snappier questions. Um, this is a perennial problem. Reporters not following up on other reporters questions. And actually I was reasonably pleased this time around that there were a few, a few follow-ups again, I, you know, I mean, the question I would have asked if, if had I been in, a, in that room is all right, education experts tell us that, this has been a lost year for millions of American school children, especially in poor and minority neighborhoods. Uh, what's your plan for making up some of that lost time? And, and obviously, it's easy for me to do that in the comfort of my own home on this warm and welcoming podcast. Um, but it is notable that, that the questions like that didn't, didn't really get asked. Yeah. Uh, and I think the schools one in particular, you know, does now that you've raised it, you know, leaps out as, as, as one that's, you know, so much on the minds of so many people. Well, uh, anyway, this was, um, a, uh, uh, a very helpful, uh, corrective to those who watched the Biden press conference and was listening to the blather on cable TV. Um, we, we were corrective to that. Um, and, uh, we will, Definitely want to have you uh, back as we get more press conferences, hopefully sooner than later. Olivia, you've got this new column at The Washington Post. You want to tell us about it? Sure. It's called The Daily 202. It's The Washington Post midday political newsletter. I flagged a number of different immigration steps that the White House announced in the past week in the run up to this press conference. Not going to say that's why they announced them, but, you know, uh, anointing Kamala Harris as the lead person on this policy. Uh, detailing the message that they're sending directly to potential migrants, sending senior diplomats and senior Biden aides to Guatemala and Mexico. And late last week, in what certainly looked like, oh, let's not call it a quid pro quo. Okay, no, let's. um, Getting Mexico to close its southern border to non-essential travel through uh, late April, in return for which the United States has agreed to ship a whole bunch of vaccines south of the border. So I'm responsible for that. And then we, we talk about what's happening now with the big stories in Washington, D.C. and in politics um, and sometimes reach beyond into sort of strange little corners of public policy that I like. And while we're while we're showcasing uh, all of our great work, I want to tout um, Caitlin's excellent uh, piece that just went up today, I think, today being Thursday, uh, her um, FAQ on the border situation, what's actually happening down there how we got into this mess uh, and what Joe Biden is uh, planning to do to try to uh, find a path uh, out of it. Um, So that is on Yahoo News. And more generally, um, if you want to understand that uh, unfolding tragedy, that developing story, follow Caitlin Dixon at C-E-D-I-C-K-S-O-N. Okay, and Olivier, throw in yours. Okay, N-O-X. Okay. All right. Anyway, good discussion. Thanks. And uh, until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys.